Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. So when you're ready, sir, I'll, I'll get going. I'm, I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Cliff Asnes, the founder of co-founder of AQR. Uh, Cliff is the prototypical quant. He's got an undergraduate degree in computer science and finance from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, his PhD from Chicago uh, in 1994 under the great Eugene Farmer, Farmer who... Uh, I think it's Farmer, but I, I think he'll answer to either. Who, uh, Nobel laureate now, uh, and it was two years after he had, along with Ken French, published the seminal paper uh, introducing the three factors, and then uh, to Goldman Sachs to establish the quantitative research group, and then finally the founding of AQR in 1998, which is now a, a $140 billion AUM firm. Uh, we'll be talking to Cliff right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Cliff. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you published shortly after you established AQR, uh, long-term capital management it collapses, Greenspan um, slashes rates, the dot-com boom takes off, and uh, long-short value gets crushed. And in that time, you, you wrote an unpublished paper that's now, it's now available around bubble logic. Can you draw any parallels from the late 1990s to today? Um, yeah, uh, various episodes uh, for value, uh, both good and bad, but we remember the bad ones. Um, they're not the same, but they certainly rhyme. Uh, let, it, let me take you a little uh, back to, to, to August of, of 98. Uh, we were launching our firm, as you said. Um, our first product was an aggressive market neutral long short fund. Um, that is an interesting product to launch in the teeth of a very bad period. Uh, we still have a world where uh, even if statistically you're just as bad performing a bull market um, as opposed to losing gobs of money at high vol, even if that was intentional in the design, it's, it's that, that's something I would probably go back and change the order of things we, we did things. Um, we've never been pure value managers and that's uh, true today. Uh, it's always been at least value and momentum growing over time to, um, you know, quality, low risk investing, various other, other things, but value's always been a big, part of it. I, I am a gene student and I have studied that a long time and I do believe in it. Our first month, August of 98, we were celebrating. I don't mean to be ghoulish. The world was, you know, the S&P was down more than 20%. Uh, Long-term capital, as you pointed out, began its collapse that month. Um, but we were up that month. And, uh, you know, as your lead-in indicated, uh, that was, uh, we really should not have gotten too excited about that. Uh, because uh, it's certainly Greenspan's a main 
candidate, but there are many other possible explanations. But that was the last month before the kind of 18, 19 month crescendo of the technology bubble. Um, a lot of parallels, a value uh, was obliterated. Um, we, you know, the world, um, Mr. Taleb might think I don't know this, but the world is, is not normally distributed. Um, we know that going in, so we saw kind of four or five standard deviation value realizations. You see that for virtually anything in investing over, over anything but the super long term. It happens occasionally. Um, interestingly, and this is a parallel to the last two years, um, and I make a real distinction. Uh, eventually, of course, we'll be talking about recent events, and it's been like a 10-year bad period for value. Uh, I obviously have a quant perspective on this, but I think that's shared by a lot of uh, more traditional, uh, 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 you know, Graham and Dodd kind of kind of concentrated stock pickers. I always feel like the interplay between those, what's similar and what's different is, is, is interesting also. Um, but for the first eight years of those 10 years, it was actually a very good period for my firm. So it does point out uh, kind of simply that we can't simply be pure systematic quantitative value investors or that would not have worked. Um, the obvious answer is kind of everything else worked real well. Profitability, earnings momentum, low risk investing, all more than made up for value. In the last two plus years, both the value, um, and I think, again, value managers of all stripes, uh, if you do this with simple value ETFs, now, not that that's how we implement you, you absolutely see it, um, has accelerated. So value's uh, done poorly and, and, and worse than, and not the cumulative eight years, but worse than most of the periods. And the, this is absolutely a parallel to 1999, 2000 in the, in, the, in the tech bubble. The rest of our process that normally, even values doing poorly steps up, didn't then and didn't, in the last couple of years, because, and I, I th this is my version of the story, I'm sure there are, uh, are uh, to be other interpretations, but a lot of the rest of those things are meant to capture the non-value aspects of investing. Are earnings getting better? It is, is it a profitable company where you should pay a bigger multiple? It's uh, sustained profitability, moats, uh, whatnot. Um, and so it turns out, uh, and this is a very self-serving way to phrase it, I admit that, though, though I do think it's accurate, in what I would call a rational loss for value. Um, and we overload that word too much in, in, in our field. Uh, I don't mean to give it a moral uh, dimension, but in a loss for value that is deserved on the fundamentals. Actually, for at least our style, and I think for a lot of um, investors who aren't just looking at price, that can be a pretty good time. Sure, pure value doesn't work because it's lost on the fundamentals, but much of the rest of the things you look at have a chance to make up for that. In the tech bubble, and notice I call it a bubble, and as, a, and as an ex-gene pharma student, um, I, I, when I say bubble, I still feel kind of... Uh, you know, when I, I always it's no such when, thing. Yeah, when I'm on the east or west coast or outside of the U.S., I'm very comfortable saying bubble. The closer I get to Chicago, the less comfortable I am saying bubble. But I do think that that was a bubble, and I think we're seeing somewhat of 
uh, a similar of a bubble within stocks now, but when value loses for what I'll call irrational reasons, and that has been the case for the last two plus years, and it was the case in the tech bubble, um, the, not because they've massively underperformed on the fundamentals, but simply because multiples have done this. We didn't, for the first eight years, and I'm, I know I'm blending 99, 2000 with today, but for the first eight years, and don't hold me to the exact numbers, if you measure value slightly different than me, it'll be nine years, it'll be seven years, it'll be, but, but for the first eight of these, say, 10 years of a value drawdown, value did not get super cheap on our measures. Um, I used to, it's hard to remember, but two, three years ago, three, four years ago, I was arguing and taking the other side uh, from people who are um, a little more knee-jerk contrarians, looking at only at returns. Value's been destroyed, therefore it has to come back. But you know, I like super simple examples. If you bought a stock list that had a low PE, and you shouldn't buy a single stock based on this, and simple PE is not a way to run your life, but if you bought a stock list, it had a low PE, and the price dropped 50%, but the earnings dropped 75%. Um, a pure return contrarian says, hey, it's got to be super cheap now. But someone who's looking at the most basic evaluation ratios um, in, says, no, it got more expensive. Now, that's too extreme value to not get more expensive in those eight years. In fact, it cheapened a little bit. That was part of the loss, but a small part. Most of it was fundamentals. And again, it turns out that's a pretty decent environment for us. In the last two plus years, we've seen the factors that we believe in that are meant to pick up fundamentals not work, or at least not work nearly well enough. And the multiples smash out, the cheap getting cheaper, the expensive getting more expensive. Those, of course, go together. If value is losing not on the fundamentals, you see multiple expansion in the relative return, uh, multiples of cheap uh, versus, expensive, uh, versus expensive. And that is precisely, I remember back in the tech bubble, uh, we measured momentum two different ways and, and pretty much always have both price and various forms of fundamental momentum. And they are correlated, of course. Uh, price tends to move with good fundamentals, but they're different aspects. And we prefer both, as a, moment, as a momentum investor, we prefer both to, need, to, to one or the other. And in the tech bubble, we saw half of what we do in momentum, the fundamental side, utterly fail. Price momentum held up. Price momentum is about the only thing I know out there that's your, that's your friend in an irrational bubble, or at least should be on average your friend in an irrational bubble. But fundamental momentum and other fundamental measures goes away, and that's a very strong parallel between those periods. I have often said, even prior to this last two and a half years, um, I, knew, I know this is a weakness for our process, um, anything outside of uh, uh, the, the Jim Simons fund that they only do for themselves uh, tends to have some period that it doesn't like. And an irrational loss to value is what I think of as our very hard to hedge period. Um, obviously, coming up with something that would make gangbusters of money in such a period and not lose money over the very long term, right? I know something that will make gangbusters of money in, in an irrational loss for value. It's called short AQR. <laughs> um, I don't think that's a very good long-term 
strategy. And I wouldn't add that to my process and timing that of course is extremely difficult. But if we ever found something on a more rational basis, um, outside of price momentum, price momentum has its own difficulties. It can help you in these periods, uh, but it has a pretty bad short-term left tail itself. So you're always balancing risks. Um, that would be the holy grail, would be to come up with something um, that was reasonable, that we think we understood why it worked, that uh, we could tolerate a decent amount in the process, and did great in irrational losses for value. I would not hold my breath. Have we'll, you, we'll never stop looking, but, but that, that, I, I don't see that on the horizon. Have you ever looked at Partha Mohanram's G-score? I have not. Are you familiar with that? He's Maybe. a... Response on my part. <laughs> He's an academic at the University of Toronto, professor there. Uh, well, I, I do not look at anything by Canadians. <laughs> well, he's, he, he's, uh, he's studied at Harvard, but his, his G-score... It's, you know, I was talking about the Canadian thing. You're going to get me banned. He's not, he's not Canadian, don't worry. He, he, uh, he has a G-score and it explicitly looks... So it's, a, it's somewhat akin to Piotrowski's F-score, except it looks explicitly in the most expensive 10%. And then he tries to find the, uh, the winners out of that 10%. And so that was, some, that was gonna, actually going to be my last question for you. But it's, it seems to have been the best performed strategy over the last two years, at least. Um, I don't know what the long-term track record is, and that may be a failing of it. But he seems to be able to identify. He says, you know, of that most expensive decile, you're going to find that there are lots of losers. And he, he finds that that's, as a long-short strategy, it derives much of its return from being short the losers. But the last two years, it's derived a lot of return from being long the winners, which is unusual well, for it. Um, I'm gonna. I do this a lot. I answer a lot of questions with. Uh, I wrote a paper uh, about that at some at, at some point. Um, that is largely. It's partially a function of being at least mildly prolific. It's mainly just a function of age, and I've done this uh, for a long time. Uh, I wrote a paper called in the Financial Analyst Journal called "The Interaction of Value and Momentum," uh, and it was really a very simple message. Uh, it, I wouldn't alter the whole process over this. Um, sometimes people get overexcited. Um, it, it, any any trading strategy that first cuts this way and then cuts another way tends to be a pretty high turnover strategy because you can leave the preferred long or short portfolio for an intersection of reasons now. And that's right. And, and so that has its challenges. Uh, but, you know, I found that momentum uh, was considerably better among the expensive stocks. Um, and uh, in, in there's certainly quite a few places we incorporate that, but we incorporate that at a modest level. Um, I believe it has helped, um, uh, though I don't think, and again, I, I look at uh, his stuff, um, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't turn the whole process uh, over to that. Uh, but my, um, you know, just hearing it from you, it sounds pretty reasonable. Um, and of course, my definition of reasonable is I wrote something similar. <laughs> At, at some point, it's a very self-serving definition of reasonable, but it does sound reasonable to me. Your uh, PhD thesis was on momentum, and you you may have been uh, perhaps codifying momentum. It's been momentum in some form has been around for quite a long time, but uh, under under Fama, who's uh, very well known for being efficient markets, and he's you, you approached with your momentum idea, and he said if it's in the data 
write it up. And he, uh, he and Ken French both say you're the smartest student they've ever had. Uh, so that's some people say they say that. I, I, I have never asked them for confirmation of that. And, um, it's in the Wikipedia entry, so it must be true. It's in my Wikipedia. I, entry. Maybe it's not. Maybe I read it somewhere else. I, I, so I shouldn't say. I try that. very hard to look at that extremely rarely, only when I have to, because like to anyone correct else, it. there's always something that annoys me uh, <laughs> in it. Um, I also I will not be listening to your podcast. I don't listen to myself afterwards because I oh it always upsets me um, because I always sit there and I go oh this is what I should have told Toby, and it's just too it's too painful. Um, but uh, yeah, I did write a dissertation on momentum for gene. It, 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 it did some other things. There were some broader simulations that never saw the light of day in publication, but certainly one of the big things in my dissertation um, was momentum. Um, I wasn't the first, I wasn't even the first to codify it. I was just on the heels. Uh, I think if I was a professor, I would have been tied with them, but I had to get a dissertation approved. Uh, but Jagadish and Tipman, I think, uh, deservedly get the, uh, the, 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 the uh, first place in academia for studying this. Though to your point, um, momentum was not something uh, that investors, investors have been looking at momentum, relative strength, trend, whatever you want to call it forever. Uh, value was not new. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think Fama French would be insulted for me to say that, that, that they didn't invent value investing in the late 80s and early 90s. They codified, tested, which was huge. A lot of it was anecdotal until uh, then. The codification and the testing is, is not a small thing. But I think guys named Graham and Dodd roll over in their graves if we say, you know, Fahm and French invented value in 1986. Um, and, you know, I think if you go back to the Roman Empire, somebody <laughs> buying something because uh, the, the price was II, uh, but the fundamentals were V, uh, and that was a low ratio. Uh, and someone was buying something because uh, it started to go up recently and someone was doing both. Uh, so I do think of what all of us did was I, actually the right thing to do, take a lot of standard wisdom that's out there. Uh, often standard wisdom is right, but often standard wisdom is absolutely not right and has never been formally tested. So I do think of us collectively, including very much myself, as not super original but original in going to test it rigorously. Uh, and where I added maybe to Jagadish and Titman um, is uh, they had, uh, which is often the case with the first paper, a fairly convoluted way that was confusing to measure momentum that mixed some short-term contrarian signals with momentum. You got a kind of weird result. Um, and, and I did a cleaner version that ended up working over the whole um, 26 through through uh, through ninety period the the last date in my dissertation was nineteen ninety, so I am on a still successful even given the last two and a half years, less successful after the last two and a half years, but still successful thirty year out of sample, period, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, yeah, very unless much of course so. Don't want to be old, in which case it's not kind of cool. Uh, in November last year, you wrote your uh, time for a venial value timing sin uh, paper inspired perhaps by, so we had a decade of underperformance, eight years of which was irrational, sorry, pardon me, eight, eight years of which was rational because the fundamentals were either, it was too expensive relative to its fundamentals, the spread was very tight, 
uh, and then the spread widened through to uh, last year. And so then you said that the last two years up to November had been uh, an irrational punishment of value to that point. Uh, the two questions that, uh, that you sort of answered in there, how cheap was value at that point or how cheap is value now? So you've done that on a variety of different bases. You use the academic version, which is price to book, the simple combo, which included Ford P and uh, TTMP or, or, or backwards looking P, price to sales, price to book. And then the AQR version, which is 25 value signals and yeah. perhaps some quality signals in there as well. No, 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 no it's uh, only price to something, but I'll hold uh, some proprietary measures, some price to free cash flow kind of members, there's no magic. We don't claim to know the precise way to value something. And um, again, an active manager has disadvantages. They have to take a more concentrated bet and they better be right, but they have advantages too. Um, they could uh, better than us figure out what's most relevant for each company. Um, we, uh, we try to take an approach of anything that's reasonable, that's not perfectly correlated to the other ways that we're measuring it, would probably give some weight too. Uh, but yeah, um, we found uh, late last year, again, remember, it did not get very cheap, cheapened a little bit. But for the first eight years, when you lose on the fundamentals, you don't necessarily look cheaper. And that applies to individual stocks, but it also applies to spreads. One thing to take you back again to the tech bubble, um, in 99-2000, in kind of round one of is value broken for us, value is doing terrible, should we stick with it? Uh, we did invent this measure, which uh, the world uh, generally uses, which I don't have a lot to be proud of uh, return-wise the last couple of years. I'm still proud of uh, inventing this because um, I think it is useful. That's called the value spread. Um, and all it did was say almost all the work, all the work that I had seen to date, I don't know what people did privately in, in, um, in, in, in investing firms, but all the academic work and all the published practitioner work were sorts go long, cheap, short, expensive, price to book being the most common, but whatever measure you like. And they ignored magnitude. So if all of the price to books, price to sales, price to earnings were tight and clustered, you could still sort and go long, the cheap and short, the expensive, but you're not getting a big difference. And sometimes like in the tech bubble and like in today, that difference is relatively gigantic. Uh, we did show that that is like like value for the stock market. Don't time don't expect to get the next month right with this timing indicator. I think in that paper it's a little ancient history now, but we focus on three years uh, horizons, and it was a you know not perfect, but a fairly decent predictor in the direction you'd imagine when it was cheaper. And I think those three year kind of results hold up. Um, so we've been tracking this ever since. Um, to be honest, we track it for both reasons. What if it gets super cheap or what if it gets super unprecedentedly tight? But I've always thought the second one, which is decidedly not the case now, was the most important. Um, it, does it get super tight? Do the differences in valuation get arbitraged away? Because this is hard to remember. Uh, but two and a half years ago, when life was wonderful, for, for, at least for us, not for pure value managers, uh, but, but, but certainly for us. The most common question I probably got from investors was, all right, but if you guys are right, uh, maybe you do some proprietary things that you hope are a little better, but largely you publish on this and other people publish on it. 
How can it still work if everyone knows uh, about it? And I would say, well, first of all, we've been through, uh, even excluding these last two and a half years, some horrible periods for it. It's actually much harder to do in real life um, than it. When you look at a back test over 100 years and you see the drawdowns, you know where it ends. You know it ends well. Right. So you mentally look at that and you go, oh, yeah, I'd stick with that. Look, it's a good strategy. When you're near the bottom of that drawdown, and particularly if you were unlucky and started near the top, we do find this with investors and even employees. Someone who's been doing this with us for 20 years, no one's happy about a bad period, but they're really calm. Someone who happened to invest 2.4 years ago or a new hire that we made 2.4 years ago has just never seen it work. Um, but, uh, you know, add uh, all this up. We measure this value spread. I we, again, probably tracked it, if anything, for both, but more as an early indicator that if this was ever arbitraged away. We didn't think it was easy to arbitrage it away. Again, it's hard to stick with these strategies, but it's possible. What would that look like? That would look like this price of the expensive divided by price of the cheap. This, uh, that's the order we did it in. So when it's high, value is attractive. Expensive is, 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 is more expensive than usual against the cheap. If anyone, I only memorized it for price to book, and we're certainly not a pure price to book job. Uh, but using Fama French kind of data, the uh, price to book of the top one, roughly one third, uh, most expensive one third, averages five, six times the price to book of the cheap one third. Um, it's gotten down to, uh, you know, three and a half, four. It's gotten up to, levels in the tech bubble today, parts of the GFC, anywhere between 10 to kind of 13. So that's the range we're talking. But if we ever saw it smashed down to unprecedented low levels, uh, one and a half, uh, kind of, I'm making up a number, but a level well below what we've seen and stay there, you really might look at that and say, well, the fun is over. Uh, whatever um, imperfect rationality. I try to say imperfectly rational as opposed to irrational. I think irrational is too pejorative and, and too extreme. I don't think markets are wildly irrational. I think they're imperfectly rational, which is a point in a spectrum, but I, I think an important one. Um, but we could wake up one day or probably more logically over the course of a few years and see the world has caught on to this and they've invested so much in it uh, you can't make an infinite amount of money from any strategy. Enough money in it closes the strategy. And ironically, uh, we've probably kept monitoring this again, probably more in case that ever happens. We don't need to do value. We have plenty of other things. Um, if we thought value was arbitraged away, we would not shy away from telling people, um, look, there'll always be cheap and expensive stocks, but the market is not pricing uh, it, it to a gap. And if you're a behavioralist, Maybe they used to be making errors and now they're getting it right. I, I will tell you, and I, this is the only way I'll get political at all on this podcast, uh, but I don't look around the world today um, and wake up in terror that the world has gotten perfectly rational. Uh, I, uh, you know, be it in finance or outside of finance, I, that's, that's a tough story to tell. Um, but if it did, we, we would change what we do. Again, being honest, I didn't think 
if you had asked me after the tech bubble whether I'd see something as extreme as the tech bubble again in my career, I certainly would have said it's possible. Once you've seen something, to say it's impossible to see it again. Um, I did think that you need a few more generations of, uh, uh, of memory loss before you, you, you have the same level of craziness, and I've been proven wrong on that. To your point, late last year, the spreads were quite wide, not as wide as today but, you know, 90th and plus, uh, plus percentile uh, versus, versus history, as opposed to today, which is um, in the best ways that we can measure it, the uh, solid 100th percentile, um, at least against pre-2020. It's bounced around the, 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 the top. Um, I wrote a, a piece um, saying, uh, we've all, always called both market and factor timing and investing sin. And we don't mean that morally. We just mean that it's really hard and you could screw up a good long-term allocation um, by getting in and out at the wrong times. Kind of uh, my investing nightmare, and I think many investing, uh, investors' nightmare, is they are actually long-term right, but they screw it up enough along the way that even though they were right, they failed. And if you time things too much, you introduce that possibility. Uh, so uh, there is, and timing is just hard. You do it empirically. It's really hard to find timing strategies that you have a lot of, uh, of faith that aren't either data mined or, 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 or are strong enough to matter. So we're not big fans of timing. And repeatedly, thank God, not just recently, repeatedly, we've said timing is an investing sin. And our recommendation is you sin occasionally and a little. At true extremes, after you've looked at it a hundred ways to make sure that there's not some easy explanation for why we're at true extremes and then do it in a modest way. Don't uh, suddenly become a pure value investor. Stay on that, what we call a flat surface. If the optimal portfolio, and we're always guessing at the optimal portfolio, but if we think the optimal portfolio is this mix of factors, even when we think value is the beaten up one that has the best, uh, you know, three year horizon returns, we won't, add so much that his history would say that's a far worse combination. We'll go to the edge of that mix. Um, so sin a little and sin only at true extremes, uh, and then don't expect to be rewarded immediately. We're people who preach that the timing of this is hard. I did not expect to get slapped that hard that quickly. Um, uh, and, and, you know, in some sense, I, I'm glad that, uh, you know, this is both intellectually honest and cover your behind kind of stuff. We spent a lot of time in that first piece saying, look, it could get a lot worse. Uh, going back to the tech, bu tech bubble, NASDAQ 5,000 could have gone to 6,000. Once you accept that the world can be imperfectly rational or, or even in that kind of case, downright irrational, to say that you know exactly how irrational it can get is madness. Right. Once you've accepted irrationality, you do think the more irrational it is, the better your odds get and the, and the chance it gets crazier, at least gets smaller. But it, it doesn't go away. So we did talk a lot about this is a long term bet. Uh, we're putting our own money where our mouth is, both in the portfolios and even in some personal investments that I shared um, with clients. And then I had to write a piece um, uh, early uh, or during the crazy first quarter. Uh, basically saying I've never written anything that's been this wrong this quickly. Never has a venial sin been punished so quickly and violently. 
yeah, you think venial sins should be should be punished in a venial manner. Uh, but uh, again, it, it's not fun. You'd rather, uh, you know, we all we all are susceptible to feeling once we put a position on, the world's supposed to go, and it's supposed to start to work. And and all of us know that's not true. That's not how the actual world works. Uh, but we're still at least I am, and I don't think I'm unique in this, a little mortally offended when it doesn't work that way. Um, so we've updated that. We published uh, that just to show the scale of the move. That was a short piece just saying, wow. And I switched uh, temporarily, instead of using the AQR measures to using simple US value, a, a set of value and growth ETFs. Um, I did that, it's exact same. The pattern has been very, uh, I shouldn't say exact, but it's, it's, it's highly similar you get the same but i wanted to use some non-aqr sources i think if every every once in a while if you use only someone else's data and get the same result it's a little credibility that it's not some odd cute thing you're doing that's driving it and then i wrote an additional piece after that just updating the value spreads and now they're off the charts um uh, literally they've created new uh, yeah, I, I used to, I have a running joke for many years that I don't get too excited at the 100th percentile. I get excited at the 140th percentile. And obviously it's a joke. Your, your um, listeners are, 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 are mathematically inclined. Uh, hopefully every single person has said, uh, there's, no, there's no such thing bigger than the 100th percentile. I, it's a joke, but there's some meaning to it. I, I mean something well past prior extremes. Not that at the 100th percentile, something doesn't get interesting and worth a very venial sin. Uh, but we are now, it depends how you measure it. This is always a problem. You could measure value at the Fama French way. I could, you, I could take out the industry bet and use 25 measures of value. We will not come up with precisely the same results. Um, your example, the tech bubble earlier, when I said it's similar, uh, but it only rhymes, it's not the same. The tech bubble was more of an industry bubble. Um, it's in the name. Right. It was a tech bubble. Um, it also was crazy within industries, even the way AQR does it. But it was a bigger bubble if you allowed industry bets, which is something we generally don't take very big industry bets. Today, it's bigger if you don't allow uh, industry bets. So, I just say that to say there'll always be small differences and that's not a gotcha, it's just a fact. Uh, but the stuff that gets the most realistic, um, we find to be past prior 100 percentiles. I will say that um, uh, correctly, not whimsically. Uh, and again, no reason we're gonna get the timing precisely right this time. I think the odds do get better, the crazier the world gets um, and I, I think anybody who cares about price will say they prefer the odds. Um, the, the more they're being handed in terms of misvaluation, they prefer, the, they prefer their odds. Um, but this is, this is where long-term investors, not just in value, but any kind of long-term investor, uh, this is where you make your bones. Uh, you do a strategy that long-term works. You spend a ton of time, which we really haven't talked much about, but you know we spend a ton of time trying, I hope in a very honest way, to say, is it broken? Is there something we're missing? Uh, and you, you, there are many, whenever strategy doesn't work, it becomes an industry 
of people to explain why, of course, it doesn't work anymore, and of course, it will never work again. You can't be too quick to believe that, or you will always abandon a good strategy, uh, usually at uh, three days from the, the bottom. Uh, well, calculated. You've done it. You, you've done. That's that's the the next point that I was going to make. That you, I thought the timing of the first paper was excellent because I thought I thought that the bottom of that spread was around late August and then it had been closing slightly. And so I thought you'd done very well to get that paper out. Unfortunately, then we, we did have a, a small victory party that was then subsequently uh, more than well more than eradicated. And then you, you've had to write the second paper written the Valuesberg address which is which is hilarious too and then uh just fine there was no content to that your your colleagues have written is systematic value dead and you've attached a blog post to that where you've brute forced some ideas in that looking at the spread and and from what i could see those papers were just trying to deal with many of the narratives that have arisen for yeah. why value is not working and which i think uh is done very effectively in there um the, the most interesting thing I thought from it was just showing what side of the spread is driving the valuation. So you compare the middle to yeah. the cheap side and the middle to the expensive side in an effort to see is this a, is this a phenomenon of the stocks being very expensive as they were in the, in the tech bubble or is this a, although they were cheap in the tech bubble too, or is this a cheap to the, uh, to the middle phenomenon? I think that uh, you've, you've said that this is more cheap being very cheap than expensive being very expensive, although it is both. Yeah, no, you got that exactly right. It is both, um, but I think most of the stories you hear, um, and we try to create our own stories too, but we certainly, anything that's become popular, um, we get asked about, and, and a lot of them are reasonable, and we, we go to try to test them. Most of the stories I've heard for values defeat has been, um, uh, you know, some acronym, the FANGs, the FAMANGs, I call them the MAGFANTS. Um, FANMAG. Well, um, there is a story. I came up with my own because everyone does. The MAGFANTS are Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Netflix, and Tesla. Uh, but I always joke, uh, I joked in the piece that I use Google, not Alphabet, because it was hard to make a, um, an acronym with three A's. And one of my employees sent me an email um, that was quite uh, amusing. He said, actually, if you use A for alphabet, um, it spells a fat man and you can make it autobiographical. That was that, the last part Aim. of the part that took some chutzpah. Um, <laughs> that person is still employed. Um, but, you know, the story has been more those stocks. We show just in a mechanical way, like you said, uh, instead of comparing cheap to expensive, compare them both to Midland stocks. That the expensive are more expensive than they normally are, the cheaper cheaper than they, they, they normally are, but not historically unprecedented, but more of it is coming from the cheap side, which may have its own stories, and maybe I'd be encouraging more ex post stories that industry well, uh, can produce stories why that's, uh, oh yeah, we meant that was really the problem. But clearly that doesn't mean value is going to work tomorrow again, but it does mean that the most common stories seem to be uh, a stretch. Um, They're only explaining, most of the common stories you hear are really only explaining one side. Um, and it's the cheap side uh, is, is, 
is, if anything, contributing at least somewhat more to this spread than the expensive side. Not that we wouldn't incur, wouldn't do both in a value strategy. I wonder if I can just take you through from the from the, your colleagues' paper, Israel Lawson and Richardson. Uh, that the, they identify five of these um, arguments, and then they they deal with each one in turn. So the first one is the book doesn't work anymore. And book is the value factor. When anytime anybody hears systematic value, that's the first thing they point out. Nobody uses price to book to invest. And I thought that of all of the parts that they deal with in there, I couldn't quite, that they sort of seem to agree with that sentiment. Um, got to think about that. Perhaps that value sort of that you you would never use value in uh, sorry price to book in isolation. You would always use some oh, suite of well that yeah that's that I absolutely agree with. Um, price to book. First of all, we think it's somewhat less broken, and they go through that than 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 other people do. Um, one dirty secret about value investing is price divided by anything um, gets you at least somewhat of a value strategy. The famous equal weight portfolio is essentially a value in a small cap tilt that's kind of uh, just one over market cap. It's just moving away from, from that. If you divide price by anything, um, now if you divide it by something smarter, you get a less noisy strategy. If you divide it by, uh, I don't think the equal weight version is, is close to a, a particularly good value strategy. But better than um, so, market cap. And, and, you know, I think they, they and I both start with the, um, some of the stories about book being worse now um, are credible. Uh, you know, if intangibles matter a ton more than they used to, you know, price to forecast and earnings might pick that up really well because uh, that's in your ability to make earnings. A book might have more trouble picking that up. Now, again, their paper is deeper than mine. Uh, mine's brute force. They go through explanations where they think that's not as extreme as they uh, as they think but they and i absolutely agree um i could live without any price to book that's not a heroic statement that is simply because price divided by anything are fairly correlated substitutes our druthers if, if you have 15 to 20 value measures is to give price to book uh, a a a non plurality kind of weight but you know in line with many of the other factors it is an aspect of, of value. Um, a small thing that's actually a big thing at times, um, and I think you know this from our work, um, and this is debatable. Someone else can take the other side, uh, but we don't believe in using value to take an industry bet or a sector bet. Um, um, we wrote a paper on that. I, I told you I'd start a lot of sentences like that in uh, 1994, um, and uh, pretty much since then have not been using value to take, uh, take, take an industry bet. That helps with book. Uh, book gets, uh, I, I would agree, comparing the book of a bank uh, to a tech company can get a little odd. So a lot of the criticisms people have get a little weaker when you don't, uh, you know, everyone thinks about value as tech versus textiles, tech versus financials. You can never take out that bet perfectly because you don't have a perfect industry map. Some companies cross industries, sometimes it, but you could take out a lot of it. You could compare banks to, to banks. And, and some of the criticisms, and they discuss this, go away there. But I absolutely agree with them. Books should not have any special standing um, in a tongue-in-cheek way, because, you know, I'm, I'm more than a fan of Fama and French. But I do 
blame Fahman French and Frank Russell for this. Uh, Fahman French uh, made it their central measure. They've written plenty of papers saying, just like the rest of us, a lot of the other measures are, are really pretty darn similar, but we're going to stick. They, they, do, they do like it probably a little marginally better, and they have a good reason for it. It's just a little it's more lower stable. Turnover. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little, exactly. Um, it's a lower turnover than some other value strategies. On net, we think we trade fairly cheaply. We'd still prefer the mix, so, so they might have a difference of opinion. But as always with us, it's a well-founded uh, difference of opinion. But between them and Frank Russell making it a very large part of their value indices, um, a fair amount of the world is locked into thinking of price to book as, as value, or at least as quant uh, academic systematic value. And it's, it's, I, this is not just AQR. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many practitioners who give it even particularly special standing. And let me add my favorite irony. Um, we have a page in a presentation, but we, we only look at five. Um, it's, it gets a little crazy if you look at everything, but we look at five major valuation indicators. Uh, I think we look at price to book, uh, price to sales, which you actually compare to what's called enterprise value, not sales. Um, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, sales are before interest, so you want to compare it to the whole capital structure. Uh, free cash flow, um, trailing earnings, and forecasted earnings. And just for fun, we have our own periodic chart of the order. Um, they're either up or down, and then the order of which did better. Obviously, value has been a successful long-term and a very poor short-term strategy, and you see that where the boxes are clustered, they're usually all on the same side of zero, except in years where values return was midland. And then the small differences can make one negative, one positive. But if you look over this whole period, price to book is the worst of the five. It is the best of the five in the last three years, <laughs> which I just find, not that I'm enjoying the last, few years at all, but I find that to be a, a really entertaining irony um, to it. Um, and I actually think there's some economics behind it. If you, this, bear with me, this gets a little convoluted, but I'll get there. Let's say we assume that price to book is a reasonable, but not the best value indicator. The other ones are better. And by the way, when I say it's been the best in the last three years, that means the least worse, the least bad. Um, and price divided by anything, um, broadly speaking, you can always find something, but price divided by anything has not been a good thing to be doing for a while. But price to book has been the, uh, the, the best of a bad lot. Uh, imagine price to book is worse. What does worse mean? A book contains noise in it that's not relevant for valuation. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make it backwards. Uh, sometimes people think if book, if book value is a noisy measure of of true value, um, then, it, then it has to not work at all. No, you add noise to a process, you make it worse. But you don't change the sign. It suddenly doesn't become a suicide strategy. Uh, but if it is a worse version of value, what are you gonna see? You're gonna see it over the long term not do as well, which is absolutely what we see. It's the fifth of five. But if you have a period where value the concept, not a particular measure, if people truly are freaking out and selling anything that's not a darling and pouring all their money into the darlings, 
the better you measure that, the worse you're going to do. And that sounds very self-serving. I am actually saying that we've done worse than price to book alone because we're just that much darn better than it, which is a tough sell. Um, but it, it's also why I think we've done better. Our valuation indicators have been better than price to book over the, over the long term. And I don't, it, it, whether it's self-serving or not, I think it's pretty clean. Imagine price to book was a terrible measure of value. Not backwards. Again, you didn't automatically lose money, but it was a random number. It really didn't pick up the value effect at all. What would it look like? It would be the worst value measure long term because value works and random doesn't. Throwing darts doesn't outperform. It would be the best in a value, in a horrendous value period, because it's not capturing value. That is too extreme. I think price the book does capture a fair amount of value, and I would not, and Farmer French's trade-off against turnover, they could even be right. But I do think it is somewhat ironic that price the book being worse is actually a better thing when you're in a everyone hates the real fundamental concept of value. It's better to measure it poorly. Uh, and all the haters um, would have preferred to be in price the book for the last couple of years. I like it. Uh, there, 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 there are several great points. In, in tough, the tough times, Toby, you have to find your joys wherever you can. It's tough. I, I agree. I'm, as, as a purer value guy, it's, uh, it's, it's a very rough run, but I, I draw some inspiration from reading the AQR papers telling me why it's not that bad. So I, I, I really appreciate you guys publishing as frequently as you do. No, we say it is that bad. It's just going to get better. That, that, that'll work for me too. Hope is all I need. Right. You, We're here. You talk about uh, intangibles and the, or in this paper, there's a talk about intangibles and correcting for intangibles should lead to better returns. Uh, Dealing with share repurchases, there's no greater outperformance for uh, companies that do high share, or they're no, they're no worse at being assessed using these value measures. The two that I really wanted to turn to, uh, just very quickly, one is that uh, the value strategy is too naive and too well-known, too easy to implement, and that is the reason why it hasn't worked. And the rejoinder that you make in the paper is that the spread is very wide. And the one that I find particularly interesting is that the accrual anomaly, which worked for a while and became very popular and was sort of maybe, maybe got too much capital uh, invested towards it and sort of famously went away. And that's often the thing that folks talk, talk about that you can oversaturate these strategies with, with too much capital. But the accrual anomaly has come back. And so you, you suggest that's, some, um, that's a... And, and we never abandoned it. We never, we never gave the accrual anomaly tremendous weight, uh, but we didn't lower it when it was unpopular, and, and we didn't, uh, and we stuck with a modest weight to it. Um, single factors, irrespective of all our stories and our explanations, they don't have super high sharp ratios, and sharp is not the be-all, end-all measure. Again, the world is fat-tailed. I use it as a same way everyone else does as a way to uh, compare. If you have a particular fat tail strategy, say an option one, you never want to use sharp. Uh, but most, you know, to, to get to an overall process balancing many factors, we think you can get to a north of 0.5 sharp uncorrelated to markets. That's awesome if you can do it. That's a sharp above stock market returns uncorrelated. It's like having a second stock market. 
it still goes through horrible periods. And that's for the whole process. So individual factors can't have, they have to have lower sharps after trading costs, after everything else, after implementation. Um, so something like accruals, if it's a 0.2 sharp, and I'm, don't hold me to the numbers, I'm making it up. Um, 0.2 sharp, square root of 10 years was roughly three. It takes about a 0.7 negative STD event to have that be flat or negative for a decade. If it's as good as you think it is and you'd want at least a small amount of this in what you do, which is why we keep an open mind. We always try to investigate, are we wrong? Has something changed? But we try very hard not to be the knee-jerk people uh, to say, well, it hasn't worked for a while. It must be done. Now, the accrual anomaly is harder than value in that I don't know any one-stop, you know, let's look at it to see if it's been arbitraged away. Uh, but you got it exactly right, and I referred to it before. We worry about value being arbitraged away. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing a world where no one on earth seems to give a darn about value. Um, I, I am fond of saying if, if value has been arbitraged away, someone forgot to tell, tell the prices. I also occasionally paraphrase Yogi Berra, who famously said about a restaurant, that restaurant's so crowded, no one goes there anymore. Uh, people are saying value is too crowded, but nobody goes there anymore. Um, if anything, uh, it is a worry. Uh, the nice news is you probably get a consolation prize if value gets arbitraged away. A, a, the last few years are glorious. Because what is, what is arbitraged away? It's someone buying what you're overweight and selling what you're underweight, narrowing that spread, and that accrues to your benefit. Uh, the bad news is at the end of that period, you have to pay, be paying attention and have some way to, to say, well, this isn't going to work no more. Um, I have a running joke, um, and again, I did this more uh, two and a half years ago when I was really talking more about what if this ever gets arbitraged away, not today's, why is it ever going to work again? Um, but I used to look at the, um, the, the youngest AQR person in the room, and whoever that was, I, I'd be like, well, imagine this gets arbitraged away over the next 10 years. Uh, we do better than our normal kind of back test draw because we have this wind at our backs. The world mistakenly thinks I'm better than I am because credit and blame, and I've seen both, uh, you, you, me, me, me and, and the, the more uh, general AQR, they think we're better than we are. I retire, I don't know if I'm retiring in 10 years, but I'm making that up, I'll be 63, it's a little early, but I retire, uh, turn it over, uh, uh, to, to, to the woman to my left, to the youngest person in the room, and say, the good news is you're in charge. The bad news is I used up all the return forever. <laughs> Again, we do other things. It wouldn't all be bad news, but it would be at least mildly bad news for her going forward as the new head of the firm to have no value spread. And people would mistakenly say, boy, we used to do well when Cliff was here. Um, it had nothing to do with me. Uh, but that could happen one day. But the, the people saying that value is too well known to work, I think, I, I think of all the explanations for why value might have problems in, in today's world, that is by far the weakest. Because I, I think we have a very clear indicator of what that would look like. And we're seeing dramatically, you know, 
not just dramatically, 100th percentile dramatically, new 100th percentile dramatically, the opposite. I, I don't get how you have a world where, where so many people do value, they've arbitraged it away, so the prices are radically more different than normal without a fundamental justification we can find. Um, so yeah, I'm, I am pretty dismissive of that one. Well, that's a, that's a good segue into one of the questions that they ask is, do fundamentals still matter? And they have a very interesting approach to assessing that, create this, um, they look, it's, it's completely cheating, which they say in the paper. And the point is that you take the Ford earnings estimates for a year in advance. So for 2020, we get the 2021 estimates of 2022 and we're able to trade on that basis. And then you can look at, of course, that generates a, an incredible sharp ratio. It's a great strategy. Really, it's not, I really should. <laughs> if I could get those Ford estimates, I'd be very happy, but you're not able to do that, of course, in the real world. But it shows that there are periods of time where even, even with those Ford estimates, you still can't generate reason good returns and the two that really stand out 98 99 and 2019 and 2020 so uh, do fundamentals still matter um not so much currently i mean that's what when, when i say i think 99 2000 was a bubble and i do think at least cross-sectionally among stocks i'm willing to use that word now i am making a statement that again i don't want to go irrational versus not perfectly rational do fundamentals not matter? I think they matter considerably less than they normally do or than they should. Uh, I wouldn't say that the expensive companies aren't better companies. Um, you know, we, we, I, I include this in my latest blog. Uh, one of the final tests I do is looking at some of the quality measures the literature looks at. The most famous one, I think, being uh, Robert Novi Marx's gross profitability to assets. There's no magic to that. I think, again, just like value, there are other ways to measure it. Um, but I show something very obvious, that cheap companies on average have lower margins. World is not perfectly rational, but it's not totally insane, right? Um, so you're normally giving up. So if you're a pure value investor, and, I don't, and, and a Graham and Dodd style value investor can look at more things than just price, so they can account for this. But if you're only trying to buy low price to fundamental assets, you are gonna be buying worse companies almost always. There's a very brief period at the peak of the tech bubble where you had maybe value investor and Nirvana. The spreads were not quite as wide as today, uh, but you were actually able to buy uh, companies without giving up any quality. That's how, for, for the few on the call who remember that as adults, there were a lot of crazy companies. I, by no means do I say the expensive companies today aren't great companies that deserve to be expensive. I say they've gone too far, which is very different. In the tech bubble, there were a fair amount of companies that were gigantically expensive that weren't even the better companies. But the simple result today is we don't have that, though we do have even wider spreads. But we don't have the opposite either. Another thing that might give me pause as a value investor is if cheap versus expensive, will you generally give up some quality? If you normally gave up 10% on gross profitability of a portfolio of cheap against a portfolio of expensive, the most you ever gave up was 18%. The tech bubble, you were giving up 0%. Yay, you're almost um, there. 
If today you were giving up 40% and it looked like an unprecedented drop and then it stayed there, you would really have to step back and say, you know, maybe at the end of the day, we still believe in value. Maybe we think the world uh, believes this is permanent and we don't. But now you have to make tougher calls. Now you have to say this is something dramatically different than we've seen in the past. Just not seeing it. Again, so many of my stories, I know, they start out sounding like they're going to be interesting. Uh, and the conclusion is always, and we don't see that. Uh, but that is the point. We're trying to investigate with an open mind every possible story. Um, if we do find it, we will report it. But we repeatedly keep finding that's not it. I won't tell you buying cheap stocks are suddenly the nirvana of the cheapest ever and they're actually just better companies. They are worse companies. There's a price for everything. The price for these companies is way lower and way higher on the expensive ones than history. And that is not because of any larger fundamental difference that we can discover. And to be humble doesn't mean doesn't mean we, it doesn't exist and we've just failed to find it. We live in a world not of arbitrages, but of bets we think are smart in the same world you live in. We think when you've investigated everything that you can think of, that anyone else can think of, that anything you've heard and not found the answer, and you're facing wider spreads than ever in history, Occam's razor says that's probably a pretty good bet. Occam's razor is never a proof. It says the simplest explanation is usually best. So I do try to stay humble. That's why we keep looking. Is there something else out there? Uh, if so, I'll admit I'll be disappointed. It would be hard for me to have to go tell the world, ah, we found we it. Found this it. is why we lost money. Um, but I would do it. I would absolutely do it because uh, anything else wouldn't be ethical. Well, last question, uh, and it's in relation to the value and rates paper. There's... Uh, this was this is a sort of prevailing uh, narrative that one of the reasons that value is not working is because rates have been um, very low, unnaturally low, perhaps crushed to sort of virtually zero, and that somehow that has created the the conditions for which value doesn't work. And so uh, your colleagues Maloney and Moskovitz have, uh, and and I, I find the duration argument uh, theoretically pretty compelling that. Value yeah, stocks tend to be shorter value, uh, shorter duration, and growth stocks are longer duration. And so, when the interest rates drop, it impacts the growth stocks more, and that has created the, uh, the the scenario that we see now. But they they have gone through that in very in any implementation that you can possibly think of, and they they couldn't find anything that sort of indicated that was the case. Yeah. Um- this is uh, in a series of unsatisfying conclusions where all I end up with is saying, no, that's not it. Um, we certainly and still find it to be a fairly intuitive story, particularly when long-term real rates are lower. Uh, any kind of distant cash flows should be worth more. And, you know, I don't like calling things growth versus value. I prefer cheap versus expensive. Um, but, uh, there is something to the idea the expensive are normally stocks with longer projected tails, future growth. Um, my colleagues point out in the paper, it's often not that simple. Sometimes when you have a blow to future growth from low rates, it, it, it's not clear whose growth is affected by more. So the actual numbers can can change. Uh, but by and large, this, the, the real thing is just empirics. 
Um, they step back and they look at value returns and the correlations to interest rates, um, either alone or adjusting for many other things in the marginal correlation to interest rates. And it, it varies by specification, but they don't find much. I, I keep planning, I haven't gotten it. Uh, like you've seen before, I often take my colleagues' great detailed paper and do a brute force simple blog inspired by it, um, where I both try to introduce the paper and do it in a, maybe a little bit more of an accessible way. Um, I have looked at my value spreads uh, that we've been talking about, which is not quite, this is related to returns, but not quite the same, because remember, you can have eight years of bad returns and not see a big cheapening if it's fundamentally. So it's not the same as returns. And I find a little bit more than they do. We don't force false agreement at AQR. Um, if, if we have, we don't have a lot of people who think quant is the worst thing in the world and, uh, and you should buy one stock. You can't have complete disagreement. Um, but we share with people when we have different people at the firm who have at least nuanced views. And my show, statistically, this is dodgier. It's what's called levels on levels. It's harder to be confident in the statistics. Uh, you only need an infinite amount of data to asymptote to accurate statistics. And, you know, it might feel like we've been in an infinite drawdown, but it is not, not quite there yet. But I do find, at least as a point estimate, that interest rates explain wide value spreads a little bit more than my colleagues work. And they, they don't literally look at that, so it's not a contradiction. But the spirit that interest rates might explain things, and this is what I want to write up, I find to be a little bit stronger. But then when I do the exercise that, that, that you must do next, all right, what do the spreads look like through time if we adjust for interest rates? What would the spreads be over and above low interest rates or under and below high interest rates would imply? You find it is still well past the prior historical maximum. So these are the least satisfying explanations in finance. When someone says, yeah, there's some truth to that, but it's not nearly enough, no one walks away happy. The people who believed in it kind of still believe in it. They grumble, they didn't test it. You didn't right? test it right. <laughs> the people who, who didn't believe in it are mad that you conceded that there's something there. Uh, but I do give a little credence to the story, at least in the spreads version, I do find some support for the story, but, and, and some support, if you're, if you want to tell irrational bubble stories, some support that the world then takes way too far is a fairly consistent story, right? There's some economics here, people are not totally crazy, but they've gone nine times past what low interest rates would imply. You could also, again, it's a bubbly kind of inefficient market story, but it may not be literally the rate part, which is, um, which is just, uh, you know, can be rational pricing of cash flows, but the speculative environment of such cheap money. You, you know, for our story to be true, you, you have to get to a point of, of, of why are people paying crazy, in our view, crazy prices for the good companies and crazy low prices for the less good companies. So there's going to be some irrationality somewhere. Um, one simple story, and this is very hard to prove, these are just conjectures, is yeah, eight years of irrational loss to value has led to a two plus year blow off, get me the hell out of this stuff, that has been an irrational loss to value. Another version is, is growth stocks have always had a bit more of a whiff of speculation to them than value stocks. 
Um, and if we have a world of you know free money, even if it's not literally the interest rates that justify it, might that be part of the bubble type environment? Absolutely. Um, not a proof, and there may be other explanations. Um, but yeah, we think low interest rates of all of them is probably the one with the most hope before looking at it, because it is, there are inherently reasonable aspects to the story. Again, my colleagues tell you why it's not quite as simple as you think, but, but, but we all get the intuition of that. And it, it just, it's not nearly enough. Um, if low interest rates are justifying, you know, 8% of a wider value spread, the 92% that's left over um, still has no story to it, still seems to be a, a, a rather extreme mispricing that's going on today. Well, that's all we have time for today. Cliff, thanks so much. Well, for... Is it okay if afterwards I just keep going? Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll turn off the recorder and you can tell me what you really think. No, I meant alone. Sometimes I, I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, incredibly grateful for the for the uh, the time that you've spent going through these papers. I I realise that that's um, uh, getting into the weeds is uh, it's it's rare to get the guy at the top of the firm to get right down into the weeds. So I very much appreciate that. Uh, I, I live. In- yeah. <laughs> uh, very much appreciate the time, Cliff Asness, AQR. Thank you very much, sir. Well, these were great questions, and you've read all the stuff, which I always appreciate. So thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>